So we are in Genesis chapter 34, continuing in our journey with really what is Israel essentially through um, God establishing them in the promised land, the land that God had promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And uh, it's been quite an adventure. The adventure continues. Last week, we saw that uh, Jacob and his family encountered Esau, his brother, and he was very much fearful of that encounter and how it would go. And, and you remember, Jacob tried to manipulate the situation and work on, on the emotions of Esau. Uh, I can understand that. I mean, if I were in his shoes and my messengers came back to me and said, Esau is on his way and there's like 400 soldiers with him, it didn't sound very it didn't sound very promising, right? It sounds like Esau's coming for revenge because uh, he still has yet to forgive him for what Jacob did in his, in his younger years. And so Jacob tried to, you know, take the situation and control it, uh, forgetting, to be honest, as we all often do, that ultimately God is sovereign, God is in control, God is faithful, God will keep his promise. He made a promise that promise needs to happen through Jacob and his offspring. And therefore, Jacob can rest at night knowing that they will be well because God is with them and God is faithful. And so now they're in Canaan. We're coming to um, the first of more trials in their new residence that will, will follow. And it reads a lot like a family account, which it is, except that... Uh, God is moving them forward in, in, in their calling, and, and we can look at this and easily forget that. We can look at this, and it might even seem as though, you know, all of this was just a random event, and, you know, poor Jacob and, and Dinah, his, his daughter, who we know in this account, Dinah is assaulted sexually. It's a heavy thing, uh, but through it, what we're going to see is um, God is unmoved, his plan and purpose is unmoved. Ultimately, Jacob, Israel, is unmoved in this. And in fact, it results in more of an establishing Israel in the land than had this event not happened. So, I will add this, though, as we get into this. Uh, I will say that whenever God is on the move, we need to understand, expect, and know that the enemy will be ready to resist. Uh, you know, I remember many, in many occasions from my own life, maybe you can relate to this, I no sooner am embarking on what God is, is, is calling me to do, this new thing, and I'm beginning to step out, and as soon as I take that first step, I'm hit with something. It's like I get hit with a bus, and there's, there's resistance trying to stop me before I even get going. And I have way too many stories to share with you about that, but uh, I really see this as the enemy's attempt to thwart a couple of different ways, maybe through discouragement of what takes place with Dinah. Maybe it's through the attempt to intermingle with Israel so that they are no longer a separated people, separated unto God's purposes, but becoming one with the Hivites, which was the goal of Hamor, uh, Hamor as we'll see 
uh, tonight, his goal was to make Israel one people with them in the land. No more a distinction as God's people who have a calling from God, a purpose from God, and a standard by God to live a certain way for God in God's promise. We have to be aware of that. If the enemy cannot get us from without, he will try to get us from within. And it doesn't have to be total destruction. It just needs to be a little compromise that begins to slow us until it finally stops us. And so in chapter 34... Let's get into verses 1 through uh, 4. We're going to look at what happens as Dinah wanders off alone and is attacked by Shechem. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her, and violated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. Well, what a start we're off to. So first, notice, uh, after their encounter with Esau, they're settling here now, and some, yeah, we don't know what day this was or what particular, how, how long after this uh, settling into the area of Shechem this took place, but Dinah has some kind of a curiosity about these, these daughters of the land. Notice how, by the way, in this text, God speaks to us calling them Daughters of the land, while Dinah is the daughter of Leah, whom she born, had born to, to Jacob. There's a, there's a very clear distinction that's made repeatedly through this chapter and throughout the Genesis account. As we follow with Israel, there is a distinction, as there should be, between God's people and the people of the land. And this is going to develop a bit more. But what we know of, uh, of Dinah is... Uh, and men much smarter than me, scholars have concluded that based on all sorts of calculations that were made and research that was done, Dinah is about 14 to 15 years old here. So she's just a teen girl. You know, imagine one of our teens just, you know, uh, one day here at church service wandering off a little bit to go explore something and something like this happens. So you can understand the vulnerability, the sensitivity of this. But it also contrasts with with how Shechem sees her, and he takes her. There's very strong words used here, very deliberately, in fact, in the Hebrew, to point out that she is a victim of this. If we just read that, uh, you know, he laid with Dinah, we could think that this was a... a, a, um, She consented to this, but that is not what the language tells us. The language tells us that this was she was subjugated to this. So he did this by force, and this is reminiscent to me of the very first rebellion of man. Did you notice the words that were used here? Shechem saw, he took, 
He forced himself upon her and violated her. Remember the very first, what's the first rebellion of man? What was the very first rebellion? Come on, you scholars. Simpler than you think, Elliot. Brother, you win the prize tonight. Phil Reardon's going to take you out to lunch. That was the first rebellion. God had given very clear instruction, did he not, in the garden, right? And he said, of all these things you may eat, but of, of this one you may not. And of course, that was the one that we wanted because, well, we're human. We want what we think we can't have. And Eve saw the fruit of the tree. She saw that it was desirable, right? It was desirable. She saw it. She took it. She ate it. She was defiled by that, not by the fruit itself, but by the act of disobedience. And then that passed on to her husband as she gave it to him, and he ate it, and he never owned up to it. He blamed God, uh, essentially saying, God, it's your fault. It's the woman you gave me. And that excuse has been used by men since then to this day, and it doesn't work. So Eve saw the fruit, right? She took it. She ate it against God's will. But just a little, that's in Genesis chapter 3, just a little bit further ahead in Genesis 5 and 6, what was happening in the land that brought God's judgment upon the world through the flood? Do you remember? There was extreme violence in the land. Violence and immorality. Where the, son, where the sons of God, right, these, these prominent men in the land were, were taking... A, all whom they wished from the daughters of men. Just taking these women, and the, and the connotation there is that they were taking them by force. There was no sense of morality. It was rampant immorality. This brought the judgment of God. And so what we're seeing again, and if we follow the pattern through Genesis, what we see is even though God gives a, a, the true great reset, apart from regeneration, man cannot change truly. He cannot change in his own strength. God must change him from within by his spirit. And when there is a life that is surrendered to Jesus, that life will then reflect Jesus. But apart from that, man will eventually return to his old ways, even though he might make a good effort, it's a valiant effort, he will eventually fail. And what is happening is culture, one person at a time, has been corrupting. And so now in this land of Canaan, this was a big problem. If you remember, this is a pagan people and God was about to deal with these pagan people and judge them for their immorality, which is a big deal to God. And he would do that through uh, Israel. But this is what's happening. It's they're kind of returning to the ways of the world in the time when judgment came, in the time of Noah. And Shechem, as I mentioned, he's a, he is a Hivite, right? And the Hivites were a notoriously immoral people. It doesn't mean that everybody was as bad as they possibly could be. Even in the midst of a corrupt generation, there are people who have a, uh, a, a moral compass. They haven't completely seared their consciences with a hot iron. 
But by and large, this was representative of the people. And we're going to see as this breaks down how we can understand the people did not have an issue with rape. So he takes Dinah and violates her. And as a Hivite, God had warned Israel uh, on many occasions not to intermarry with the people. And it's not because one human being is more is cleaner than another. It's because of the influence of the culture. It's because of the influence of the pagan practices that were present, which were largely geared towards uh, sexual immorality. You had the uh, pagan prostitutes who would work at the temples. And these practices and how they would worship, it would involve sexual activity. And so you can imagine the men of Israel seeing these beautiful women and thinking, I like the way you guys worship. I want to be a part of that. They needed to deal with it aggressively. And so what's going to transpire next is an attempt to essentially intermarry. And uh, this is what God had warned Israel not to do. And um, this very event here is a good example of why God had said to them, be separate, be careful, be watchful. This is the reason why. So, this happens to Dinah. We don't get to even hear from Dinah throughout this whole account, by the way. Keep that in mind. Word gets back now to Jacob and his sons, and uh, they're not happy about it. Let's take a look at verse 5 to 7. Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men, that is uh, Dinah's brothers, were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. Amen. Now guys, I just got to point out that the reaction of Dinah's brothers is an appropriate reaction. This is the reaction that we ought to have to news like this. When we are living in a world that every day, more and more, it's the norm. Immorality is the norm. Morality is abnormal. It is, in fact, becoming more and more of a point of contention. And it is, if I could use the word, almost persecuted. It's condemned by the world as an unfair thing to expect others to be like that. It's, it's you know, and, and, usually, and now they're trying to associate morality with a certain political kind of group. And I can tell you that if Jesus tarries in his return, we will, in not very many years from now, if not sooner, we will face persecution, even if the assumption is incorrect about who we are as a people because of what is driving this forward the spirit of Antichrist that has been in the world since the early church 
And the time is short, and he knows that. So he's heating things up even more. But they're grieved, and this is a really appropriate response here. They're grieved, it says, and very angry. Literally, they're pained with grief and burning with anger. They are on fire. They're lit up over this. Now, if you put yourself in their shoes, you can understand. How many of you guys, how many of you men have a sister? Raise your hand. All right. You know, and I'm just thinking if I was Jacob. I mean, I've got three sisters. And um, I I remember uh, going after one of my brother-in-laws with a baseball bat many years ago. I won't get into the story, but I have my reasons. But I, I think of Jacob, and if this was my daughter, only the grace of God could hold me back and keep me from taking revenge in my own strength. And I like to think that in that moment, if that should, such a thing should ever happen, that God would help me and sustain me to not take matters in my own hands, because that would be my first reaction. I'm just telling you honestly, as a man, that would be my first thought. I will rip this man apart. That's what I would want to do. I would not be thinking first about my witness to, uh, to Christ, you know, in this guy's life. This is why we need the grace of God. We need the Spirit of God. So, these guys are burning up. That is literally what the text means, and this kind of prepares us for what they're about to do. And we're going to see that they end up doing essentially what I would have done in my own strength, apart from the grace of God, and that is taking revenge, uh, taking revenge for their sister. And so they say that this thing is outrageous, right? Now, depending on the Bible translation you have, uh, if you have the ESV, it says this thing is an outrageous thing. If, if you have the NKJV, it says disgraceful. And the idea is the same. This is something that should not be done. In fact, the language here is even stronger. Such a thing in Israel must not be done. It doesn't say such a thing mustn't be done. Such a thing in Israel mustn't be done because God has set the standard. Now, again, here is a clear distinction being made between the concept of morality for God's people and that of the Canaanites. This is God's view of immorality and sin. And this is the view that God would have us to share with Him. That we would consider immorality and sin that separates us and destroys relationships both with each other, people, and destroys relationships with God among people. That we would view sin as an outrageous thing, a disgraceful thing, something that must not be done. You see, the norm in society, throughout this whole account, we don't, we don't see anybody coming to Jacob and apologizing. We don't see Shechem coming and saying, I'm so sorry for what I've done. I want to make things right. I, I, I don't know what overcame me but I want to do the right thing. I want to marry your daughter. None of that takes place. This whole event is treated as though it's just another day in Shechem. And this is what we do as Hivites. So there's a a very strong distinction and what is normal in society is likely morally outrageous in God's eyes more and more so every day. 
it's come up a few times in recent, in the last two or three weeks, people have asked me my thought on the legal, legalization of, uh, of marijuana, and I, I, I understand the reason for the question. That's because I think sometimes we may, we may, under, we may equate legality with morality. In other words, if it's legal, then God must be okay with it, right? Isn't that what that means? Doesn't that mean that the good people in government made a decision and therefore their judgment becomes the compass for me? My moral compass? That, that's not actually the case. Listen, adultery isn't illegal, right? Adultery isn't illegal. Immorality isn't illegal. Immorality is actually empowered and, su- and supported. I won't get into how, but you guys know if you've been around long enough. I remember when some of those legislations were first put into place under the guise of, well, it's for safety. It's so people don't transmit AIDS and so on and so on. Never dealing with the heart of the issue, but just continuing to enable it. So what we have to understand is ethics have to do with what is, what is right versus wrong, not what is legal versus illegal. Because in some parts of the world, it is illegal to be a Christian. Therefore, is it wrong to be a Christian? You see, we don't take our, our, our marching orders from the government. We do all that we can as God's people to obey his word and to align ourselves with the leadership and the limitations of government up until and unless it defies the very command of God. Then we say, no, we're not going to do that. There is a higher authority that I am subjugated to willfully because God's word is good and pure and perfect. So we don't look to society for our moral compass. We look to God for his good pleasure. What is it that pleases God? And may God help resensitize us as his people. I remember living in Serbia. Uh, it was Yugoslavia at the time. Serbia was the capital. Yugoslavia no longer exists as a federal republic. It's where my wife is from. And I lived there from 93 to 97. Um, my wife grew up there. After we got married two years later, we moved back to the States. But what, something happened to me, guys, when I was living there. A lot of things happened to me. But one of the things I noticed that stood out to me when we came back to America was the first time I put on American television. Because we, we only, we had like one channel in Serbia. It was, it was called Bel, Belgrad Jedan. And it was a political channel where if you suffer from insomnia, that's what you put on. <laughs> so we never watched it. So we basically just didn't watch TV. And then we would very selectively rent VHS tapes. How many of you guys know what those are? <laughs> All right. The younger generation has been cultured and educated. I like it. So when I came back, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing and hearing on mainstream TV, on Channel 4 in prime, at prime time in the evenings at 7.30 at night when families are, 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 are together watching television. I couldn't believe the words I was hearing. I couldn't believe it. In four years that I was out of the country, so much had changed. And I, I, I could see very clearly the, the shift and the change that took place 
in the moral compass and the actual agenda in the script writing of TV shows where, again, immorality and the very things that raise themselves up against the glory of God were exalted, praised, and pursued. And I remember being struck at the core of my heart and my soul, and I, I had this weird feeling of just I, just, I felt defiled, and I didn't even do anything. All I did was see it and hear it. And I thought, what happened? Well, what happened is I was removed from the slow-boiling pot for a period of time. So when I came back to it, I, I was resensitized, and I realized the world is in a bad place. But you see, we're, if we're desensitized, it, doesn't, it just doesn't affect us anymore when really it ought to grieve us. We ought to be very grieved and very angry with what's happening, not hating people, hating what's happening to people, hating what sin does to people. So we don't look to society, guys. It's not the gauge for us. So beware of that. And to button up that question, listen, the Bible makes it very clear that we are to be clear-minded, sober-minded, under the influence of the Spirit, not under the influence of intoxication from alcohol, not under the influence of, of uh, mind-altering drugs. So... I don't encourage you to go to a dispensary and buy marijuana. No. If you're submitted to Jesus, he's all you need. Now, getting back to Dinah, who, by the way, was dynamite. That's why Shechem was just so crazy about her. She was dynamite. I know that hurt, didn't it? That hurt. All right. I wasn't going to do that to you, but I just, you started seeming like maybe I'm losing you, so you were falling asleep and I had to wake you up. So, verse 8 through 12, uh, Hamer comes and, and speaks to Jacob for Shechem, his sons. But Hamer spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. And make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. And take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it, and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me whatsoever dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. So Shechem here follows the, the backwards way of the world, right? Pleasure first, then commitment maybe later. I'm just blown away that in all of this, there's no regard for the family unit, the order of things. Again, no apology, no acknowledgement for what has taken place. There's this expectation they come in with, maybe because they were royalty and they, you know, he's, he seems a lot like, you know, um, being the son of a king, right? He seems like a spoiled guy who's always gotten what he wants, doesn't know what it means to have no said to him. And so there's an expectation. I, I, 
listen, I can be insensitive, and I oftentimes, I often am. I, I'll confess to you, when I first proposed to Renata, it wasn't even an official proposal because I was afraid she'd say no, so I was very crafty. And I said to her, what would you say to me if I asked you to marry me? <laughs> Someone's getting excited back there. And we were just talking in her car one night, because I was a poor missionary in Yugoslavia. I didn't even have a car. She was driving me around on our date. It's really embarrassing, and it only gets worse from there. Um, but I believe in transparency. So she paused for a minute. She looked at me. She goes, I think I would say yes. And I was like, great. Let's do it. I never even actually asked her. The next thing we knew, we were shopping for rings. And listen, the internet wasn't around back then. This is 1993. Um, I wasn't even a cultured young guy. I lived in my room playing guitar all day and performing at concerts and recording in studios. I didn't know anything else about anything. I was completely clueless, had no idea how to treat a woman truly, and had no sensitivity to her parents when we went out and bought rings, and I never even asked for her hand. Yes, it gets that bad. So how did, I, how did I let her parents know? Well, we called them up and said, hey, are you guys home tonight? And uh, they said, yeah, we, we want to talk to you, we said. So they're like, okay. So we show up in the house. Her mother is sitting down on the armrest of a big chase lounge chair. Her father is sitting at the table at the head of the table. I'm at the other end of the head of the table. He's sipping tea or something. And I said to him, well, Renata and I decided to get married, and here's the rings, and I, jiggled the, I jingled them in the box. He spits his drink out. Her mother falls back into the chair off the armrest. And, <laughs> and I'm just sitting there watching this all happen, going, what's the matter? What's wrong? I thought you guys would be happy. And he says, hold on a minute. And then her mother stands up and says, one question for you. Are you staying in Serbia or are you moving back to America? Because she wants to know, am I going to take her daughter away? Then her father says to me, this is not how you do things. He was right. This is not how you do things. And he said, fine, you guys want to get married. Let's have a proper engagement. Let's, let's, we don't just do things haphazardly, he says to me. This is all in Serbian, by the way. And her father was a very intimidating guy. He said, you need to do things the right way and in order, and you need to, you need to do them in a way that you, have, you remember them. And he said something to me that I, I, I want to honor him because he died only uh, uh, four, four years ago. He was an incredibly godly man. He died of cancer, and radically, he radically impacted my life, and I owe so much to him. But he said this to me. He says, memories are like pillars in life that would hold you up. He says, you need to make pillars. Make this event a pillar in your life. That when hard times come, you will have this to hold you up and to remember, let's make this a beautiful engagement. Let's plan it out. And so, so we did. And, and I, I look back and I just think, they were so gracious with me. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm inspired by them to be as gracious with whoever comes and asks my daughter's hand, and he better ask. Um, I, I really pray that I can be as gracious and, and as, as favorable for my daughter's sake. 
So I understand the insensitivity. But here we, we obviously have a very different scenario. And um, this is a, a big deal. But guys, I want to point your attention to what is said here about Shechem's soul. This word here, it's the Hebrew word is nephesh, and it, it has to do with the entirety of the man's being, but largely the flesh. And the, and the description here is saying that he is burning, he has an insatiable desire for your daughter. Essentially, he's got this thirst that only she can quench, problem is it communicates a very carnal desperation, has nothing to do with a God-ordained, blessed union that God brought together in the right way. It only has to do with what he wants and what he expects to get, because now he's asking, and notice he's treating this like it's a business transaction. How much for the girl? It's essentially what it is. Name your price. I can pay it. I'm royalty. I'm the, son of, I'm the son of the ruler of the land. Tell me what you want for her. I'll give it to you. It's incredible. So beware of this. Ladies, if you have a guy that tries to tell you, you know, he just can't live without you. He's got, you know, he, you, he, you have to be with him because he loves you, he needs you, and he can't live without you. What he's really saying at that moment is probably, I love me, I need you to make me happy. Therefore, I want you to be with me. True love will not force. It will not manipulate. It will allow decisions to be made. I mean, it, it's almost like saying, listen, I don't want to give you a choice. You've, you've got you've to give me what I want and what I need. That's like me holding a gun to my wife's head and saying, will you marry me? I mean, I didn't even propose to her, but that's what I did. It's still better than that, right? It's not a relationship. And be careful when someone says that, you know, when, when there's a very carnal desperation, it may be flattering for the moment. And this can work both ways. A woman can say this to a guy, but it's typically a guy who will do this, just to be honest with you. It's a true sign of self-love. You need to be careful of that, so beware. Because here's what the Bible does regarding true love. The Bible always describes and demonstrates love as an action, and it's an action that has the best interest of the object of that love in mind. True love gives, it doesn't take. And all we're seeing with Shechem's so-called love for Dinah is taking. And he's trying to figure out how he can take more. At this point, taking her forever for life by paying whatever, <clears throat> whatever business transaction will satisfy Jacob. You see, Jesus, we're told, was given by the Father because he loved the world that's how he showed his love for the world, right? John says, God loved the world in this way, not so much as in the size of his love, although that's true too. I would consider it to be a tremendous love, almost indescribable. But it means in this manner. This is how God loved the world. He loved the world by giving, and he gave his son. Paul 
just absolutely captivated by the love of Jesus for himself in his own personal life. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what drove Paul to live for Jesus. This love of God became the standard for everything. So much so that when Paul instructed the husbands in marriage, he said, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, husbands, love your wives. That is a tall order. That is not a love that Shechem possesses here. That is not a love that comes natural to any man. But that is a love that is possible with the man who has been born again and has the love of God dwelling within his heart, the Spirit of God in his life, working in him, working through him. So Hamer comes and... Just a second here. Let me try to get you to the next... This, uh, this next point. Tries to tempt with possessions. Notice what he says. He says, listen, take our women. You can have all the pick of the land. Just make this agreement. Be one people with us. Uh, you'll have possessions. You can trade in the land. You can become wealthy. And you can have, you know, so you can have the girls and you can have the toys, whatever it is you want, right? See, a marriage alliance with royalty like this could be very tempting, but Thankfully, Israel wasn't having it. They weren't interested in that. God will make Israel great in his time and in his way for his purposes. And I'm thankful that obviously this never happened, and so God's plan was not disrupted. But this is how Satan loves to work. He loves to offer God's people a quick and easy way for whatever it is that the flesh might want. You know, he tempted Eve with the shortcut to what she thought she wanted. Satan tempted Jesus with the kingdoms of the world. He didn't need to go to the cross. All Jesus would have had to do there in Matthew 4 was to bow down and acknowledge that Satan was the prince of the world. Waiting on the Lord is the opposite of this. And waiting on the Lord is the true test of our character. I think it's sometimes some, one of the hardest things to do. I'm, I'm challenged by the grace of God in your life, Greg, and how you waited on the Lord seven-plus months in the hospital, waiting each day, you know, when will this change come? When will the Lord take me out of here? I'm sure those seven months felt like seven years. But this is the true test of our character because, brothers and sisters, our flesh is very impatient. There's nothing patient naturally about me. Um, I'm not naturally inclined to just sit back and, and wait. I'm not naturally inclined to just choose the hardest way of doing things. I don't mind hard work, but I don't look to make things harder. I don't look to find ways in which I can wait. I want things sooner, but you know what? Society understands human nature, and it has learned to capitalize on it so that businesses are built on the basis of convenience. We actually call an entire genre of stores convenience stores, right? Amazon is based on one-click shopping. 
You don't even have to leave your seat. You could sit on the couch and just do all your shopping, and it's kind of fun. And I just press the button, and magically it's at my door the next day, sometimes even the same day, depending on where you live. A pizza chain, you guys know, Domino's, they built a lot of their business on the promise that you'll get your pizza in 30 minutes or it's on them. Remember that? I remember those commercials. And listen, don't you think I'm carnal enough as a Christian man that I am as imperfect as can be that when I ordered Domino pizza, I was hoping they would be late so I could get a free pizza? God, give them a flat tire on the way here, you know? So let me save that money because I don't have much of it. It's all built on catering to human nature. So half the battle sometimes, guys, is, is just understanding ourselves and, and being aware of this so that when the temptation comes, for the quick and easy way, when the temptation comes for, to promise you or offer you what you think you might deserve, but God is holding out or he's not moving fast enough for you, beware. Beware. Trust God. Let your character be refined and wait on the Lord. I've learned by both mistakes and by victories that if we wait on the Lord, we will see his glory. We will see it. He will show himself strong and faithful. Let's look at verse 13 to 17. The brothers are going to speak out now for Dinah. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who was uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us. And we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. Now, there's partial truth here, right? It's true that in order to become grafted in, you had to be converted as an Israelite. As a male, you would need to be converted. So there's partial truth there. But listen, Moses is faithful to call it out for what it is. It's deception. They spoke deceitfully. And it's interesting that the sons of the chief deceiver, Jacob, I shouldn't say that. Lucifer is the chief deceiver. But Jacob was the heel catcher. He was the manipulator. Uh, he often did deceive. But this has kind of been passed on now to uh, his sons. Granted, it's a, it's a unique situation. But, you know, as we travel through the journeys of Israel, we continue to see these, these problems within the family that only God's grace is able to uh, you know, salvage and restore and repair and still accomplish his purposes. But I love that the Bible gives us a 3D view. It doesn't hold back any of the failures or any of the wrong things that God's people have done. It's encouraging to me because it reminds me that God calls imperfect people, he saves imperfect people, and he uses imperfect people. We will simply not be perfect this side of eternity. Amen? Now, we press on that we might be made more into the image of Christ daily by the influence of His Spirit as we surrender and yield, but we know that we're waiting for eternity. 
So I, I, I got to say, I'm, I understand the deception here and what they're up to. I, I get it. They've been deeply wronged. And in all fairness, they're a smaller people group. They're outgunned in the land. They're dealing with royalty. These are the rulers of the land. And this situation, if I were them, I might be conniving and thinking, how are we going to deal with this? Because it appears to be the case that Dinah is actually still held up against her will at Shechem's house. And we see this happen in verse 26 when they're going to go and they're going to take her out uh, of the house after they plunder uh, the Hivites and have actually slaughtered the men. We're going to see this happen. So it's a tricky situation. So they use the circumcision as kind of a clever battle plan. And we know this is a covenant that God had, had given to Israel. And uh, there's a lot of wonderful and beautiful spiritual connotations that go with it. Uh, but it was and is a physical uh, covenant that was to be kept. And so circumcision on grown men without the help even of modern medicine was just a brilliant plan. If, you, if you're trying to defeat a people and you're outnumbered, this is one way to do it. So the goal, again, is to uh, free Dinah from Shechem's house, and probably they're thinking, hey, how do we make it clear that you don't do this to Israel? You don't do this to one of our people. This is not how we roll as Israel, right? But also, I would say, this is a taste of how God does use nations to judge nations, And God is actually bringing judgment against them, even though from their perspective, they may only have a one-dimensional view of this. God is doing more behind the scenes than we often understand. Let's look at verse 18 to 24. We're almost done. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. That's incredible to me because I, it, you know, this is the guy that assaulted Dinah, so it doesn't say a lot about the rest. And Hamer and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell on the land and trade in it. For indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives. Let us give them our daughters Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, listen to this, guys, this is part of his agenda here, which Jacob wasn't even probably aware, but God was, and this gets turned on their head. Will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all, who were, and all who went out of the gate of the city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. So both, you know, father and son here, Hamor and Shechem, they have different reasons for why they're kind of happy with the, the business agreement, if you'll call it that. Uh, Hamor's happy with the idea, the deal, the agreement because of the commercial side of it. He wants to be able to trade and become even wealthier because probably he sees God's blessing already on, on Jacob and, and, uh, and Israel as a nation, as a growing nation. And for Shechem, he gets to have the girl that he really, really wants. So different, 
but they're both kind of acting in a sense as shrewd businessmen. And Hamer comes and gives this speech at the city gate. Essentially, this is kind of his sell pitch to them. It's like he met with this private dealing there with Jacob and his son, his sons, and then he comes back and he presents it to the whole corporation. You know, he's got his PowerPoint up there. Hey, here's what we can get out of it. All we've got to do is this, and here's the bottom line. It's a very favorable bottom line, right? It's almost like a business deal and a sales pitch. And this, by the way, just... Guys, this is what a purely carnal transaction looks like. No prayer, just the bottom line, no wisdom of God. This is why we as God's people need God's wisdom. And as for Jacob and Jacob's family, they needed the wisdom of God. It was only the grace of God that it worked out the way it did for them because had this actually gone through, uh, they would have been in a a bad place. But God knows what's in the heart of people, and this is why we need to seek the Lord in our decision-making and not simply lean on our own understanding and our own wisdom. So the guys go out, they get circumcised, and now comes the uh, liberation of Dinah where they free her from Shechem's house and plunder the people of Shechem. Look at verse 25 to 31 in closing. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain, that's an understatement, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. Now boldly, they just walked right in. They didn't even try to hide it because they didn't have to. It's kind of hard to hide a sword anyway, but you don't get a concealed carry for a sword. And they killed Hamor. And Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword, and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. And the sons of Jacob, this is uh, the other sons, came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth. All their little ones and their wives they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. And then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves against us or against me and kill me. And when he says me, he means me and my people. He speaks as one because that is the Semitic understanding here. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? So these guys, I do have a little bit of mercy for them. Um, They weren't the ones that did what Shechem did. They're incapacitated for battle. There's just no way. They're They're not recovering yet from the circumcision. There's no way they can move. Uh, They can't, they're they're unfit for battle. So this is what gives Simeon and Levi uh, the advantage. And this was their intention the whole time. The text doesn't allow us to see that until the end. But hindsight's always 20-20. This is God always knew what was happening in, in the eternal and in the spiritual realm. He sees the, un, the invisible. He knows uh, what no man knows. So God, though, still in all of this is accomplishing his purpose through the finite actions of man. Jacob's worried that 
this is going to come back and bite him, but, but actually, it seems like God is accomplishing his sovereign purpose of establishing Israel again as a force in the land and not a people to take lightly. And there's irony here because the very thing that Hamor and his son had intended to do against Israel is what happened to them. They lost their possessions. What was theirs became Israel's. And so while Jacob here is looking merely at the numbers, and I get that because I often do that as a guy, uh, he's forgetting God's promise here. And that's, listen, if we forget God's promise, the only recourse is for us to look at the arm of the flesh, and it's never enough for what needs to be done. What we need to remember is that God loves to amaze. What we need to remember is what God has promised, and God has made a very clear promise to Jacob through Abraham, but also even through his personal revelation to Jacob, the times when he would appear to Jacob in in times of, of worship and even in his dream. Now, you look at this and you think, we can't help but, but ask the question, you know, why do bad things sometimes happen to good people? And God's people, you know, we learn that God's people aren't immune to trouble. God's people aren't spared of the wrath of man. God's people aren't put in isolation from the enemy's reach. But God's people are sustained. God's people are empowered. They are also given a promise. And when God sees fit in his perfect and good will, he delivers according to his purpose. And he may choose to spare from a certain activity, a certain tragedy, or he may not. And I don't claim to understand always how God does what he does or why he does what he does, but I trust and I know. And as we watch even God's dealings with Israel, through it all, God never changes. He is always good. He is always sovereign. He is always faithful. He's always merciful and compassionate. And in those things that seem like a loss to us, I really believe It's because we cannot understand yet how it's actually a gain. Because we haven't yet been able to see the way God will use it and what he will do. But if we understand the character of God and we truly believe what we say we do about him, that is where we rest. We trust, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the promise. So, the mini-series of Israel's adventures in the promised land, becoming a nation, continues. God continues to guide, to provide, to fulfill his plan. And next up, next week, we're going to see, actually next week is Leo, isn't it? So it'll be the following. When we get to chapter 35, we'll see Jacob's name changes to Israel and another phase of God's promise to accomplish what he said he would uh, is completed. So let's pray.